M&J Video Games and Collectibles. Sport and non-sport cards, wrestling items, autographed items. We buy, sell, and trade. M&J Video Games and Collectibles, located at 1049 Queen Street, Southington, Connecticut. Call us at 1-860-479-9223 or 860-93-GAMES. M&J Video Games and Collectibles. Do you treat your dog as part of the family? <laughs> well, so do we. So why not celebrate your pup's birthday with the ultimate party box? Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Party Pup Info, and let us make your pup's party or any celebration perfection. Lose the energy drink. Yeah, it's that good. shortly that is going to tell you exactly who Leonard Wayne is so let me begin pastor Leonard Wayne PhD member of the USA martial arts hall of fame seventh degree black belt began as a wild rowdy kid where he lived in a dark life of drugs and wild sex for years today a sought after public speaker 
personal and business consultant and author of books, one of which is named after the show, Higher and Higher. His latest venture is Higher and Higher by Leonard Wayne, virtual reality realm that supports stand-up people committed to creating real solutions rather than problems. This is a quote from Leonard Wayne. I believe every individual has a God-given unique life purpose from childhood. Each person has a special direction and insight. I help Jesus Christ show clients to draw out and nurture that inspired potential loving light. When clients live their God's life purpose, they experience many real life miracles and step into an inspired real life of true wellness and balance. Dr. Wayne has proven to be a successful fight fighting some of the most extreme battles, thus some of his clients have given him the title, the extreme interventionalist. Leonard Wayne, the author of the book, Higher and Higher, is a member of the Martial Arts Hall of Fame with black belts in multiple styles. He was a stuntman in Hollywood and a former leg breaker for Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters, <laughs> who has participated in hundreds, and that is no exaggeration, hundreds of street fights and bar brawls. Uh, he's also an ex-con, having served prison terms for securities fraud, but these are shades of his former self. Leonard is reformed, rediscovered, and enlightened man of God who provides interventions and support for alcoholics and addicts. He is as dedicated to his martial arts training as he is to charity and God and helping those people who are in need of help. Ladies and gentlemen, I give to you, Mr. Leonard Wayne. Wow. Thank you, Timothy. That was beautiful. I want to share with you, I'm now a ninth degree under Bob Wall and Pat Burleson. Mm -hmm. And uh, most importantly, I do uh, get up every morning and I get on my knees and I give uh, not only thanks to my loving God for another day to serve him, but uh, my motto is trying to help people get out of darkness. The armband says, stay in the light. That's what I'm about, trying to help people really find the light. I'm sure some of the listeners can relate to depression and darkness in that fetal position. We just don't feel like living. And I used to be one of those. And now I pride myself on reminding myself it's a new day. Stay in today and love others. Right on. That's what it's all about. Giving back, helping those people, paying it forward. Um, so take us back to the beginning, the very beginning of Leonard Wayne's life. Where did you grow up? Uh, what was your childhood like? Well, ironically, I was born and raised here in California. Uh, I was, uh, I want to say blessed to have a loving mother, and I was somewhat cursed to have a father that was uh, dealing with bipolar, matic depressant tendencies. He worked in Pico Rivera at Ford Motor Company, and he hated his job, so he used to come home and take it out on us more myself than my sister. Uh, when uh, he could no longer hurt me physically, he started kicking my dog. But it's interesting, uh, we all have to overcome obstacles. And to me, I know that uh, I have forgiven him. Uh, I realize he did the best he could. A lot of people don't understand what that's about. And it's a chemical imbalance. So it's not like they get up in the morning and say, I want to be miserable. They actually have a chemical imbalance. And for people I work with, I encourage them to realize there is medication you can take to help you with that. 
But most importantly, uh, I know for me, I just stay on my knees in the morning till I feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. He reassures me that we're not only going to get through today, no matter what it throws at us. I also want to interject, the best antidote for depression is to go out and do loving deeds for others and try not to get caught doing it. I mean, it's not about the uh, look at me, look at me. It's about doing little things and truly feeling in your heart that's who you are. And if today's my last day, I know that's how I've already started my morning. Yeah, it's about your legacy and how you want to be remembered when you go. Like, what's the one thing that you want to be remembered for when you go? Is everybody's different with that question. You know, myself, for me, I want to be known as a helper. I gave back. Um, I wasn't selfish. I wasn't self-conceited guy who was about myself. It's really about we together collectively as people. What can we do together to make something successful? Because no one in this industry, entertainment industry, has ever been successful on their own. What do you What do you have to say about that? Well, I not only concur with that, but I really do believe uh, a lot of it has to do with ego. Mm -hmm. And uh, ironically, I have the pleasure of working with doctors in recovery. And we meet every Wednesday night. And it would amaze you how many physicians are dealing with addiction issues. But I am the guest speaker this evening, and the topic is going to be on ego. And ego to me is edging God out. All of a sudden, it's all about us. Look at me. And I used to deal with that. I mean, I used to be a very insecure individual where I would take my suit off when I was working as a securities broker. And I wanted to make sure you saw the label. It said made for Leonard Wayne. I mean, I want to make sure you see that. I'm somebody. And what is that really about, my brother? It's about wanting to be loved and accepted. And we do such strange things to achieve that. And yet, really, when we get a hold of our ego and we realize when we're loving others, that's when we really feel loved and accepted. It's just natural. And it usually starts at about, believe it or not, four or five years of age. We're now being recognized as either uh, somebody who shares our toys are somebody who's very selfish. I just feel it's so important, especially for people dealing with addiction issues. If you don't understand, the ego will prevent you from asking for help. You will convince yourself it's not that bad. I'm really not an alcoholic, even though I drink all day. I'm really not an addict, even though I get up smoking cannabis. I mean, I'll be very blunt. If you're contaminating your temple, the Holy Spirit cannot help. The Holy Spirit's not going to be a part of somebody who's putting poison in their body. And a lot of people want to pretend that it's really not a problem. I know I was one of those people. I used to believe, you know, hey, I wanted to be a cowboy and cowboys drank whiskey. So I wanted to be a champion drinking whiskey. I also wanted to out drink my friends. I mean, that to me made me special. I can drink you under the table, Timothy. And yet now I look at it as, you know, it was just a gift, wanting to be loved. I wanted to be accepted. I want to go back. When I was 12 years old, our neighborhood, we had a gang called the Fairhope Gang. And that was the name of the street, Fairhope. And to get into the gang, you had to drink and also smoke cannabis. And I didn't even smoke cigarettes. So smoking cannabis was pretty difficult for me. I didn't know how to inhale. 
And drinking back then, we had uh, things called Ripple and Red Mountain, this disgusting cheap wine. And I'll never forget how I wanted so bad to be in that gang, I made myself do things I normally wouldn't do. Now, again, that was the uh, Achilles heel for Satan. And for people who don't believe Satan's real, I guarantee you he's not only real, but he wants people to believe he's not real. When I work with addicts, it's funny, especially crystal meth, they all have had intimate conversations with Satan, usually in the vents. He's up there. He's up there, Doc. And I ask him, well, if you believe Satan's real, do you believe God is real? And a lot of them, especially recovering Catholics, have been subjected to very uh, unorthodox and um, abusive people that have tried to make them believe that God is all about hell and you're going to hell. Well, for most of us, we're in hell when we don't have a relationship with a loving God. So I remind people the answer is forgive them for they know not what they do. And just realize if you're at a stage of your life where you can make an intelligent decision, try this today. Try to accept a God, not organized religion, a God that's loving. And most importantly, he has a sense of humor. Because I want you guys to know, if you read my book, Higher and Higher, you're going to realize I did some crazy things that if God was all about putting people to hell, I'd be at the front of the line. But he not only has allowed me to forgive myself, and for addicts, again, I keep going back there, addicts have such a difficult time forgiving themselves. They've done despicable things, usually the people who love them the most. I mean, when an addict tells you he's been stealing out of his mom's purse or stealing from his family or cheating on his wife, that's hard to forgive. So I remind him again, it's about asking for forgiveness and then believing you're a better person. You're a new person today because you want to be a new person. Don't hang on to that baggage of depression. Look at how it's made you who you are today. I know you, Tim, and I know you personally went through some obstacles and hurdles yourself, and it's made you the man you are today. And I, I can yes. tell the listeners that don't know you, you're a very loving individual. You've also been blessed to have a new beautiful wife in your life. So it's made you even more loving, but the, do the doors are opening now for you. The Lord is opening up doors wide. And it's because you trust him and you ask him, lead, guide, and direct me. I give you the thanks. It's no longer that ego of, look at me, look at me. It's all about me. Mm -hmm. I think it's also to interject at this time, what's so important for me, and it's funny, I just posted on my Facebook last week, if I was to die today, what would my legacy be? And I really do believe that most people know my legacy would be, oh, that's the six foot five guy that walked around saying, stay in the light, stay in the light. There's also something very important I want to share. On these armbands, it says, the devil's a liar, praise the Lord. Now, just like the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy clicked her shoes three times. If you say this three times, the devil is a liar, praise the Lord. It is his kryptonite. 
He cannot be around people. He'll find someone else to go annoy. And all of a sudden you feel better. So you don't go and do what you normally do, which is sedate yourself with either drugs or alcohol. That's what I did anyway. I know coming from an addict, alcoholic perspective, that is our natural run to. It's interesting too. I used to drink to celebrate victory. I used to drink to suppress depression. And it had me in darkness. I hurt the people I love the most. It's just weird. I'm sure you know some people that are in this darkness right now. And I want to encourage anyone listening that also has this problem. You can go to my website, LeonardWayne.com. It tells you how to get in contact with me. It has my phone number. And I'd be honored to not only pray with you. You can just call me and say, I need a prayer. I don't have an offering basket. So again, what is my motive? I want to help you get out of darkness. The more I help others, the more the Holy Spirit knows I've changed. And then doors of opportunities open up wide. And all of a sudden, I run into a person that, wow, what a coincidence. Tim, you know there's no coincidence. Some no, people everything. use the term karma. You know, it's karma. Karma's real. As far as darkness and depression, you put yourself in that frame of mind where you don't anticipate good things happening to you. So again, we create our darkness. I say we also create our hell. So I'm going to repeat again for the people that are listening right now and truly want to, again, address that issue. How do I get out of it? Again, it's the devil's a liar. Praise the Lord. Say it three times. Try it. I also want you to know you can always go back to depression. I'm just giving you suggestions because I don't know about you personally. I always did the opposite of what people told me to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't tell people what to do in therapy. I offer suggestions. I think it's also interesting. In my office, I have a mirror and it's right behind my desk. And when people come in, I ask, Timothy, do you have the courage to look in the mirror? And most addicts and alcoholics do not want to look in the mirror because it's not something they want to see. Mm-hmm. And then they come in thinking, I'm going to help them. See, they see the PhD and they go, oh, you're the doctor. You're the doctor. Listen, you're the one that's going to find the help. Look in the mirror again. That's who's going to help you. You. I'm just going to give you suggestions on how to beat the devil. But mm-hmm. you're going to help yourself because you're actively searching for answers. You don't want to be that person any longer. So again, that's my reversal of my ego. It's not about, oh, absolutely, I guarantee you I can fix your problems. No, I guarantee you can fix your problems. And it starts by you having the courage to look in the mirror. Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to the people who love you. Admit Right now, you have a problem with either drugs or alcohol. And by admitting that, that's the first step of conquering your ego. I want to repeat, ego is what? Edging God out. Ego. Well, the thing is about you that I admire a lot and really respect is the fact that you've been through hellfire and brimstone. So a lot of things people really don't understand or realize is a lot of people giving them the advice haven't really lived what the problems are that that person's going through, what you have. 
So that started at an early age for you. Um, I know there was a situation where you were in a kind of in the middle of a domestic situation between your parents when you were a child. And then something happened, if you want to elaborate on that, that really, man, really changed the outcome of your life for quite a while. You know, you hit the nail on the head, Tim. I, uh, I was not only born with a, uh, an issue with reading called being dyslexic. So I saw letters backwards. And of course, uh, my dad coming from the Rodney Dangerfield School of uh, Loving Kids, it was backhand, backhand. And I remember as a young boy, seven years of age, being on the couch and I had the book, Johnny Learns to Read. And every time I'd miss a word, I got hit in the side of the head. And I, apparently he thought that was gonna help me learn to read but to no avail, and it's ironic how the good Lord works. Uh, I think I was in second grade, maybe going to third. It was interesting. We had a African-American teacher in our school named Mrs. Smith. And for some reason, she took little Lenny under her wing and said, you know, I think you might have a reading problem. I go, really? So they did some tests, and they discovered that I was dyslexic. And ironically, they got me in a program where these beautiful women surrounded me and taught me using phonics. Uh, back then, they had very interesting machines that would flash letters and make your eye learn to correct the letters. And they loved me. And that's when I, again, started realizing I enjoy this love from women stuff. But the interesting thing I think you're alluding to is for almost 38 years, I absolutely despised my father. I mean, I didn't like him. I write in my book, he was a coward. I never wanted to be a coward. And uh, cowards are bullies. And I felt that's what he was. And uh, ironically, when I was uh, almost 39 years of age, I remember he came to my office. I was running a company called Columbus Financial. And I had made my first million dollars. I had offshore accounts. I mean, I thought I was it. And I remember he inquired about where I came from. And I said, well, I believe it was your sperm. And ironically, he was uh, baffled by that. And I was trying to deal with uh, forgiveness. Because my mom now had become a RN nurse and she was making money. And ironically, she had now got addicted to diazepam and Kendall Jackson. And she had become somebody I didn't recognize. I mean, this was a woman that was my Sunday school teacher, uh, the PTA mother. She made homemade bread. Oh, I want to go back to Mrs. Smith because I would bring Mrs. Smith homemade bread. And oh, my God, she would just, oh, this is, and I really would prefer Wonder Bread because I was so used to this. I'm like, well, why can't we buy Wonder Bread? But, but ironically, this was the woman I remembered. She always attended my little league games and, and she now had become very vindictive and wanted to pay my dad back for being this person. She had painted the house pink. Uh, she was having affairs with the men in the church. And my dad knew that the uh, gentleman across the street was one of the guys she was going to Laughlin with. So I literally saw in a dream, and I put this in the book, I saw in a dream him kill her. So I took him to the beach, 
with his little dog. And I said, dad, it took me a lot of years to forgive you, but you're now the underdog. You're the one now being punished. And it's not fair. I mean, I don't know why you don't just get a divorce. That's what people do that get this ugly. But you're going to end up killing my mom. And I saw this in a dream. And he looked me in my eyes and he promised me he would not hurt my mom. I'm like, you don't understand, do you? You're a manic depressant. And when you snap, you go crazy. I mean, when I was a young boy, I think seven, eight years old, we were having tacos. And apparently I didn't say, please pass the taco sauce. He got up and he slammed his plate on the glass table and threw a taco at me. And my mom was just in a state of shock. And that was normal in our house. These type of explosions were normal. I actually learned his schedule by the time I was 10 years old to where I made sure I wasn't around when he came home. Because no matter how hard I tried to please him, he would find some reason to be unhappy. And I couldn't imagine having a son like me. I mean, it's like I cut the lawn, I picked up all the dog shit, and yet he'd find one thing to try to, again, criticize me. And it's important I share this. My uh, father's dad, Grandpa, he not only taught me how to play the harmonica, and uh, he was always loving. And I know my dad was actually envious. And he confronted him once about, why do you treat my son like this? You never treated me like it. And my dad, he had four brothers and three sisters, and they lived in Martinsbury, Ohio, in a little shack. Uh, my grandpap was an alcoholic, always had a bottle of Kessler's. I share in my book, when I was uh, probably, again, eight years old, we were driving in his Cadillac. And I remember I was in the back seat playing with the electric windows and uh, my grandmother, she made the mistake of saying something about his drinking, and he gave a look that scared her so bad, she decided to jump out of the car, and her body was rolling, and I'm looking at this, I'm looking at my grandfather trying to figure out what did I just witness, and back then they still had uh, a sane asylum, so she was put in Camarillo State Hospital, and I remember going there, and it was like cuckoo's nest, another vivid memory in my childhood to where, what is this? But I want to go back. I hate to say crescendo. I then took my mom to the Ritz-Carlton and I said, mom, I barely even recognize you. I mean, you're drunk at noon. And I mean, her mother left her father because of alcoholism. So there was never alcohol in her house. There was never cigarettes in her house. And she again said, well, you just don't worry about me. I bought her a Colt 38. She says, I'll just shoot him. I go, mom, you don't get it. You're going to be passed out drunk. And he's going to shoot you in the head. And he's going to shoot you in the heart because you broke his heart. And Tim, it's important I interject this. My dad was such an enigma. He's only been with one woman physically in his entire life. I mean, I didn't know there was such a thing. I, I can't tell you how many I have had. I mean, by the time I was 16, I couldn't. But the point is, this was his mindset of marriage. 
So ironically, he waited about two weeks till her birthday, April Fool's Day, 1999. He went in her room, he shot her in the heart, he shot her in the head. He put his little dog in the bathroom, went in his bedroom and blew his head off. And when the police showed up, he had on his bedroom wall, probably 60 or 70 three by five cards I had sent to him weekly because he was hard of hearing. So it was hard for him to talk on the phone. And they were just motivational cards that I had written either from Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, W. Clement Stone, Positive Thinking, but just trying to remind him that your mind is what you control. And to this day, when I share with people his Bible that he had read numerous times, highlighted, and in the back of it, he had five three by five cards talking about what he was so thankful for, his beautiful, loving wife, his pension, his meds, his kids. And obviously he wasn't thinking in any of that when he did this despicable deed, this selfish deed. And believe me, it took a long time to forgive him for that. I also think it's important I interject this. I've been raising my granddaughter. Her mom is still an addict. And at three and a half, we adopted her and she's now 15 on the Edison cheerleading team. And she asked me about four years ago about my dad's status and she believed he was in hell. And I said, Zariah, why do you believe my dad's in hell? Well, he killed your mother. I said, yes, he did. But see, God knows if you have a chemical imbalance. See, God knows the circumstances that led to that. And between me and you and the listeners, it was actually harder for me to forgive my mother who knew what she was doing. I mean, it got to a point she was physically groping me. I didn't want to be around her. And this was a woman that always made up for my dad's shortcomings. She was always there, always loving, always supportive. So that was such a major obstacle. And yet again, ironically, it was shortly after that I got indicted for the securities fraud case and now ended up self-surrendering to the federal penitentiary. I always found it interesting when they would ask me, now, Mr. Wayne, is there any possibility you might hurt yourself inside the prison? I'm like, wait a minute, I self-surrendered. If I was going to kill myself, wouldn't I have done it before I came to this lovely facility here at Safford, Arizona? I mean, come on. But I also feel it's important that when I was doing that vacation, as the Lord works, I went into the chaplain's office, and on the top shelf of his library, there was a large King James Bible, and I reached up and grabbed it, and I said, excuse me, chaplain, whose is this? And he said, must be yours. I go, really? So I figured since I had some discretionary time, I should probably really read that get into it and figure out what is in this book that people say is the living word. I mean, the living word. What, what, what does that mean, the living word? So to this day, they're still using my motivational program inside the federal prison because most inmates have a release date. So I thought I might as well use my time in there. And of course, the warden knew my background in securities. She had me doing her book because of my martial arts skills, 
Uh, I don't know if the listeners know this, but the inmates actually steal the motors out of typewriters to make tattoo machines. So she had made me a proposition. Mr. Wayne, how would you like early privileges for meals? How would you like to have an air-conditioned office with a private bathroom? And I'm thinking, that sounds attractive. Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to protect my typewriters. I'm like, protect your typewriters? Yes, people procure the motors. So I'm like, okay, so I'm now running the typewriter room where people are allowed to write legal correspondence. And it was fascinating again, just like the outside, here I am inside, and yet still was able to work the system to my advantage. I remember the captain coming up to me and he said, what's the deal with you? You're able to hang with the Muslims, the Hawaiians, the Chicanos. I mean, you don't understand. You should be shanked. Is it the book? Is it the big book you carry? I don't think it's the book. And in my book, I describe an episode that happened in the typing room that I think the readers will enjoy. Uh, I had uh, three black gentlemen come in and they uh, made a comment about they had seen me giving white guys paper. And I said, well, the white guys procure the paper from the law library and I just hold it for them. And if you'd like to procure paper, I'd be more than happy to hold it for you. So one of them took offense to that. And I said, you know, I don't think you understand who you're talking to, but you can either talk me to death or we can go outside and see who's got what it takes. And this guy's nickname in there was Holyfield, like the boxer. Apparently he was quite talented. So before the three of them got out, I got up and got one of them in the back of the head and it went out into the yard and everybody's standing around. And all of a sudden, because of doing that, I was now welcome in their circle. And it was once again fascinating how being a stand-up man, and that's a term I like, stand-up. What is a stand-up man? A man who stands up does the right thing. He understands what moral virtue is. When he sees someone being bullied, he stands up and says, hey, not on my watch. Okay? That's not going to be happening. You want to mess with somebody? Why don't you mess with me? I love to fight. And a bully doesn't want to mess with somebody who likes to fight. They know they're not going to turn out well. But it's interesting because, again, everything that's happened to me, I've tried to turn it into a positive because that's the choice I have. My best friend, Ray Savinick, who I taught to jump trains, surfed with, blew his head off. Mm. I've had nine suicides. So one of the specialties I talk about when I go to what they refer to as IDAA, that's International Doctors of Alcohol Anonymous, is suicides. What is it about suicides? So that actually right there is we're going to, this is the end of episode number one, ladies and gentlemen, with your host, Leonard Wayne of the Higher and Higher Show. We're going to come back with episode two in a moment. We're going to talk about suicides and how to prevent suicides and that there's a better way out then. What? Yeah. No, I'm, yeah, I'm behaving myself. I'm, no, I'm not playing in abandoned buildings. What? Again? Now, I suppose you had those people follow me again. Fine. Hey, 
This is Jimmy Farrell from Monty and the Farrell, and I want to thank all our subscribers. We have now passed 14,000 on our YouTube channel, but I want to ask our subscribers to take the next step for us and become a full-fledged member of Monty and the Farrell. Yeah, that's right, folks. There's three different levels to choose from. There's free shirts. There's free autographs. Just check it out and become a member of Long Island's number one pro wrestling broadcast, Monty and the Pharaoh. Later.